1: Are you ready to begin?
2: All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, That's
3: wow, really it's going up so slowly. Up the state of the state flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television
4: devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event?
2: Yes, I'm all set there.
5: Hello and welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson and today we have the highs and lows of space missions to Mars. And Richard Hollingham reports from Arizona on the X 15 space plane and hears about its unsung astronaut heroes and the effect it had on people like Bert Rutan.
2: The final X Prize flight. He beat the X-15 Altitude record, which had been set 41 years before, and you've never seen anybody as happy as he was. He was out there literally jumping up and down. I beat the X-15. It gave that goal. It was something to shoot for. I'm going to do something better than that.
5: Although Hillary Clinton was trumped in her attempt to become the first female president of the United States, 2016 is still a year for celebration as it's the centenary of women becoming fellows at the Royal Astronomical Society. And that's where I am now in London with Dr. Sheila Kanani. Sheila, fellows, it's it's an odd turn of phrase to attach to a female (laughs) astronomer. So who was the first woman to become a Royal Astronomical Fellow in 1916?
0: It is a funny turn of phrase, and that was why it took so long for women to become fellows of the, of the RAS. There were four who officially signed in 1916, including Fiametta Wilson, Grace Cook and Mary Proctor. Before that, there were other women that were recognised by the RS, but they weren't allowed to become fellows because of the Royal Charter that had he in the Royal Charter, which stopped them from becoming fellows. (laughs) Great
5: stuff. Well, we'll hear more about some of those female trailblazers in astronomy later. The past few weeks has been a bit of a mixed bag for the European ExoMars mission. I was at Mission Control at the European Space Operations Centre in Darmstadt in Germany for the crucial manoeuvres, and there were celebrations when the Trace Gas Orbiter sent back a signal confirming it was safely in orbit around Mars. The lander had a six minute descent to the surface, but one minute before touchdown, communications stopped. Afterwards I caught up with Dr Manish Patel from the Open University, who's working on both the orbiter and the lander, when the outcome of the lander at that point was still unknown. The second press briefing is over. It's the morning after the Trace Gas Orbiter successfully went into orbit around Mars. To be honest, after that press conference, I don't feel as though I know any more about um, Schiaparelli lander. Now you're involved in both the lander and the orbiter, so how are you feeling right now?
3: It's been a weird day yesterday and today. I'm quite literally torn both ways on this because part of me is tremendously happy now we got into orbit around Mars with TGO, an incredibly dangerous manoeuvre to put ourselves into orbit, but we've done that flawlessly, uh, which is going to ensure many, many years of uh, fantastic science from TGO. And at the same time, uh, we lost contact with the lander. So very, very mixed feelings, uh, tremendous joy and also disappointment.
5: Well, let's concentrate on the, the, the positive. Your principal investigator, co-PI of Nomad. When will NOMAD start working?
3: We've gone into what we call a capture orbit, which is a very elliptical orbit um, for the moment, just to hold us there. What we then do is a period of aerobraking to get the orbit down to a nice circular low orbit so that we can do our science. Uh, The problem is that takes a while. That takes up to a year. Again, it's something ESA have not done before around Mars. so it's another dangerous manoeuvre coming up. (laughs) Um, but it's something so they, they're conservatively saying, let's give it a year and we'll see how long it takes.
5: So you've got a year waiting before we start.
3: Yeah. What it's... will you
5: do in the meantime, by the way?
3: <laughs> well, you know, just put my feet up, twiddle, twiddle my thumbs. Uh, no, there's a lot of prep work that needs to be done to get ready for the data. Uh, we need to sort out the data processing, make sure everything's in place because we're going to get a huge amount of data coming back once we start. The good thing is that we are going to get some science early on. So at the end of November they're going to give us a few orbits to do some measurements around Mars so uh, that's a good opportunity for some early science ahead of the aerobraking.
5: Okay, so the lander part. Uh, uh, just reminders, because you've been on the podcast before, but just reminders your involvement or the OU, the Open University's involvement with the lander. I'm
3: involved in both of the instruments, both of the science investigations that were on the lander, so the Amelia was a science investigation using the engineering data from the lander so as it went through the atmosphere it had to uh, the technical parts of it had to detect the accelerations in the atmosphere how it moved through the atmosphere in order to deploy parachutes etc and things like that we can use that data to infer properties of the atmosphere itself so it's a nice freebie freebie science exploitation if you like of of engineering data uh, so you
5: have got data from Amelia then because they've got data up to 50 seconds above the
3: surface exactly that's the positive out of this for sure is that there's a lesson learned from Beagle 2 don't send the lander in through the atmosphere without any kind of communication that was a very important lesson learned from Beagle 2 so we we took that on board for this one and we communicated with uh, the trace gas orbiter during the descent so we believe we haven't seen the data yet because it's still being processed by industry, but we believe we got a lot of the data for Amelia, so the accelerations, the movements, etc., all the way down to 50 seconds. Fingers crossed, which for us is fantastic because that's you know that's 90% of our of our science target if it's all returned. So there will be one investigation which will be successful out of this. I hope the other involvement I had was on dreams, the surface. Um, Weather weather platform, if you like, but clearly uh, that won't be happening anytime soon. I don't
5: know. Is is there any possibility, or are your hopes completely dashed, that it may be a sort of Beagle 2 situation that actually the lander is there, it's in perfect working order, and it uh, in some way might be doing its work but unable to communicate, unlike Beagle 2? (laughs)
3: That's the question, isn't it? I would say it's, it's a very, very remote possibility. I, I Personally, I don't think that's really f- feasible, given what we've seen. If we'd seen a nice, smooth profile in the Doppler shift and then cut out suddenly, that might give you reason to believe, okay, maybe something failed, a transmitter failed, but it still got there. The fact that we see odd things happening in the Doppler shift, so it means that something chaotic is happening in the actual motion of the spacecraft itself and coupled with the fact that it happened when the parachute was cut and the thrusters turned on it's kind of it's got the hallmarks of a, of a probe spinning out of control unfortunately and once that happens you're you're in trouble
5: and you can't blame the dusty season on this because somebody um, sort of whispered in my ear earlier that no storms have been seen at the moment
3: yeah uh, there was a, a recent uh, news article about global dust storm predicted uh, for, for now but there, there's there's no dust storm we can't i don't think we can blame that for this there may have been a small event a small very localized event that might have interfered but to be honest i think the possibility of that is low and we we, we you know the engineers try to consider that in all their designs so
5: considering actually to put an orbiter around Mars is, is a tremendous achievement. I couldn't help noticing that the atmosphere, you know, people were saying it was success and their faces said otherwise. Everybody looked totally and utterly miserable, as if they were at a funeral. Is this because the funeral is potentially that of ExoMars 2020, that this not happening means that the likelihood of the next mission is now seriously in doubt?
3: Uh, uh, yeah, you, you... Your listeners may or not have heard the, 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 the broadcast from ESA. They kept repeatedly saying, this was a test, we got all the information we needed, it's not going to endanger the 2020 mission, but to be honest, how can it not? Um, you know, uh, we, we we were supposed to land on Mars and we didn't. Yes, we can learn a lot of information from this and we can hopefully make sure it never happens again, but... Um, we have still yet to land on Mars successfully, and trying to do that with an even bigger rover, an even more complex landing system in four years' time, it's going to be difficult. We will have the Russians on board, though, for the landing system, so it will be a different landing system, and that's the main thing we've got to consider.
5: The Open University's Manish Patel, co-principal investigator on the NOMAD instrument on the Trace Gas Orbiter. We now know that the lander hit the ground at around 300 kilometres an hour. And thanks to NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter image, we can also see where it lies. It's a bit sad. I can see Sheila sort of going, oh, I know. It's tragic, really. (laughs) Now, a meeting is being held in December to determine exactly why the lander, like so many missions to Mars, didn't make it. The good news is that the mission scientists have plenty of data, and fingers crossed it won't affect ExoMars 2020. Now that decision will be made at the European Space Agency Ministerial, uh, which is also in December. Sheila, the problem with landing on Mars seems to be the planet's atmosphere.
0: Why is that? Yeah, well, it's sort of the lack of the atmosphere. It's got a very thin, tenuous atmosphere. So Things that would work on Earth, like parachutes, don't work in the same way on Mars because there isn't the the air particles to to fill the parachutes and slow the landers down. For example, when the Curiosity rover landed on Mars, it's about the size of a a mini car uh, and it was too heavy to land by uh, airbags or parachutes. So they actually winched it down on something called a sky crane, which again shouldn't have worked really, but did. And unfortunately, that's what happened to this uh, to this lander. The atmosphere was too thin. I think
5: doesn't exactly bode well for sending human beings there, does it? Because no. <laughs> I'm I'm always the one out of Richard and myself. I'm always the one who wants to go everywhere. Richard's <laughs> a little bit more worried about things. But even I would think, whoa! I, mm. I would feel very, very reticent about the first human. mission to mars when it's never a done deal
0: no it never is and that's the thing with space flight human space flight particularly is that you just don't know what's going to happen on the day unfortunately you can do all the mathematics all the planning pile the millions of pounds or dollars or whatever currency it is into it and on the day you just don't know what's going to happen unfortunately it seems like anything with the uk interest in mars has got a bit of a kind of dead end at the moment but hopefully with exo 2022 20, or whenever it is that it goes that will end up with a happy ending
5: well manish didn't sound too hopeful mm. at the 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 outcome and also that you know the knock-on effect there is going to be a knock-on effect yeah. but by the time we do the next podcast fingers crossed we'll know whether it's uh got this the go-ahead or not yeah
0: and it would be a shame if it didn't because when I was working at the Mollard Space Science Laboratory I worked with a lot of people who were involved with ExoMars and oh PanCam back, of course. yeah yes. PanCam is being built there and back then it was ExoMars 2018 or 2016 I think to start with 2018 and to be so involved in something for such a long time and then for it not to go ahead would be such a shame
5: I agree, I agree. And in fact, in you know, our last podcast we were at the Mars Yard in uh, Airbus Defence and Space yeah. in Stevenage where a lot of the, uh, the groundwork and all the, the rovers get uh, tested out. So it mm. would be a massive loss mm. for the UK. It would. But, uh, and for Europe, of course, because it would be Europe's first first rover. So fingers yeah. fingers crossed. Now, the role of astronomy in space is crucial, of course, and for centuries, even before we thought about going to Mars or or the Moon, astronomers were observing the stars and the planets and learning all they could about our solar system and beyond. Now, it's easy to think, I I reckon, until relatively recently, that all astronomers were male, but that's simply not the case, and it's great to hear that the Royal Astronomical Society have been celebrating and showcasing um, women all, all this year and it's not o- not over yet. Now you mentioned a couple of, the, of names of those women at the beginning, the four yeah. who, who began. Now were they all amateurs or professionals? Because often astronomy was considered a sort of ladies, mm. genteel
0: pursuit. It's, it's another one of those technical terms. They were considered as amateur astronomers but that was simply because they were not allowed to write papers that were going to be published and they were not allowed to become fellows of the RAS or of other similar organisations.
5: Now, who is your particular favourite? I, um, I mine is Wilhelmina Fleming, who was mm-hmm. a Scottish woman who ended up as one of the famous Harvard computers. Wilhelmina Fleming um, was the first to see the Horsehead Nebula. Mm. Uh, she was among an extraordinary group of women at the end of the sort of late nineteenth century, beginning of the early twentieth century, and there have been a number of short essays that have been written I, I, I will put my hand in the ring here and say I've written one of them and they've been on the you can read them on the astronomy and geophysics website so who who do you have one favorite mm-hmm. or several
0: I've got a few Um I had I had to sort of learn about them because unfortunately even though they are influential in astronomy some of their names have been lost with history and luckily with our centenary we have managed to kind of celebrate them in more detail so even I wasn't aware of some of the ones before the centenary, which has been quite nice. But some of my favourites... Well, one of my favourites is Fiametta Wilson, who's a planetary scientist, and I think that's why I particularly like her, because I'm a planetary scientist, so you always like, a, yes. you know, a role model. The thing I find interesting with her is that most of her work was been, was done during the First World War, and so women, female astronomers, became more well-known during the First World War because men were off-fighting. She used to go outside and log meteors, and in ten years, her and her colleague Grace Cook logged over ten thousand meteors, including the um, origins of six hundred and fifty of them. And this is back between nineteen ten and nineteen twenty. She was so dedicated to her cause that she used to go out at night, obviously um, with a flashlight and a book, during you know air raids and and the rubble and all kinds of things falling, um, not just meteors and. People actually, well, police thought she was a German spy because she was so dedicated to the cause. And it's looking but, rather uh, suspicious you know, with is. a torture. Yeah, there, yes. exactly. So I quite like her spirit, the, you know, the fact that she was one of the first RAS female fellows and she was probably told that she couldn't do astronomy and she went out there and she did it anyway. So how were the women
5: chosen? Were they chosen for their achievements, their dedication, or is it more... A sort of sign of the times of the society saying, isn't it about time women uh, were allowed in? You had the suffragette movement, mm-hmm. you had the push to get votes and trying to make society a little bit more equal.
0: Before 1916, um, And when they weren't allowed to be fellows, they were allowed to be nominated for medals and um, awards like that. And that was often on their achievements so for example Caroline Herschel won the prestigious gold medal in 1828 on her work on comets um, but she wasn't allowed to be a fellow because of of matters discussed previously Um, after 1916 it became the way women were nominated was exactly the same as the way men were so you had to be sort of nominated by someone who was already a fellow but you had to have that academic background as well
5: so, how have you been celebrating these women at the society, other than the the essays and mm-hmm. making people a bit more aware of of of, of them?
0: Um, so, the the royal charter was changed in the January of nineteen sixteen. So, in January of twenty sixteen, we had a recreation of that royal charter and the four original female fellows um, signing the charter. So, we had um, a play in the lecture theatre sort of exactly recreating that day. And we know very well what happened that day because we've got minutes from the meeting. So it was really easy to recreate that. And you can see um, excerpts from that on our website. We also did a photographic exhibition celebrating 20 current female fellows. And again, you can see that um, photographic exhibition on our website.
5: And for you today, if you were to name, not just British, but anywhere, a female astronomer, that you think is doing a great job in terms of high profile or being seen or maybe great work? Who, mm. who would you say is one of your sort of heroes at the moment?
0: Probably people like Jocelyn Burnell, who, again, have faced all kinds of adversity to get to where they are today. A lot of kind of the more well ones that people wouldn't have heard of that are working every single day in universities, um, research scientists and professors. There were a lot that I came across when I was doing my PhD that aren't famous but have done incredible work in their field.
5: Thank you very much indeed. And if you want to read some of those essays um, highlighting the different women, some of the ones that we've mentioned as well, it's the Astronomy and Geophysics website, which is A and G dot And we'll uh, tweet that and put it on our Facebook page as well. You're listening to Space Boffins with Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. The X-planes. Now, these were a a research programme to study hypersonics. And many of its pilots either were or became astronauts. Now, some like Neil Armstrong you may have heard of, others not so much perhaps... The X-15 space plane played an important role in America's young space programme and without it we wouldn't have the space shuttle or the groundwork that was needed for Virgin Galactic's Spaceship One. Richard Hollingham was in Tucson, Arizona recently and caught up with Michelle Evans, the author of a book called The X-15 Rocket Plane, Flying the First Wings into Space.
2: I think the X-15 is extremely important in the historical context of spaceflight. Without the X-15, we would not have had the space shuttle program, certainly not the kind of shuttle program we eventually did have. Uh, One of the biggest aspects of that was that the X-15 had 199 missions. Uh, All of them landed unpowered, uh, which is what influenced the space shuttle they were originally talking about putting jet engines on the back of that thing and if they had gone with that you know we would not have had the program we did so the X15 literally made that possible that they said hey yeah you did it all these times we can do that on the space shuttle and the the X15 pioneered that whole idea of hypersonic reentry uh, it was the first vehicle that ever did a hypersonic piloted controlled reentry and, again, that helped make the space shuttle possible. And I guess it's got relevance today because it's feeding into programs like the Virgin Galactic right. space plane, the X-Core space plane. Right. Yes, the, uh, the uh, Spaceship One, Spaceship Two, these thing- things, especially the early Spaceship One program. There were actually people from the X-15 who helped work on that. They'd come in as consultants and such. So it really helped inform this idea. Uh, Just this idea of dropping a plane off of a wing of another plane, Uh, they had done it off the belly of other vehicles before, Uh, was somewhat of a novel idea. And so that's been translated now into Spaceship One, Spaceship Two. Uh, And it's been really interesting to see how that went. And I know that uh, Bert Rutan was hugely a fan of the X-15. And it was one of those deals when he was doing the X Prize flight in 2004, the final X Prize flight. He beat the X-15 Altitude record, which had been set 41 years before, and you've never seen anybody as happy as he was. He was out there literally jumping up and down, I beat the X-15. So it it gave that goal, it was something to shoot for, I'm going to do something better than that. Give us an idea then of what an X-15 flight was like. Well, the X-15 was carried aloft by the B-52. It was on the uh, wing of the B-52, uh, carried under the, uh, the uh, uh, starboard wing. And um, then about 40,000 feet altitude, about an hour into the flight, they would get up to the launch altitude and launch area, and they would drop off. And uh, uh, once immediately after the drop, the pilot would hit the ignition switch on the LR 99 and start heading up towards space. Uh, the chase planes usually had to go into afterburner before the drop to keep with it for even a few seconds, but even then the X 15 would quickly outdistance it. There were two major types of flights for the X 15 one was speed flights, the other were altitude flights. So the speed flights, they would pop up to somewhere around 90 to 100,000 feet and usually level off and do their speed runs. Uh, Or they'd just shoot for max altitude and be heading, you know, in a ballistic arc up in the area of, you know, 50 to 60 miles of altitude and just basically running until engine burnout, which is about 90 seconds of fuel. After the first 90 seconds, it's all coasting. So whether you're coasting forward and dropping down or you're coasting up and then eventually coming back through re-entry, after about 10 minutes total time, uh, you came down and you landed, uh, hopefully at Edwards Air Force Base, but there were also many emergency landings at the various lake beds along the path. Uh, So it it all worked out pretty good in the long run. There were a few incidents and accidents along the way, but... It sounds terrifying, that sort of flight profile. Yeah. Oh, it's very interesting. If you look at the very beginning of the program, they're first building up the speed and altitude. So they'd be flying you know, Mach 1, Mach 2. You know, They were hitting Mach 3 and just building that up slowly. So the early guys like Joe Walker and Scott Crossfield, Bob White, they're doing that envelope expansion. Then you get the guys that come along later in the program, like Joe Engel and Milt Thompson. Their first flights are out to like Mach 4, Mach 5. And I know Milt Thompson talked about this really, really well. It's like, we're going to go out there and drop you off of this aircraft. It feels like you're being shot off by a shotgun. None of the earlier pilots told me how this is going to feel. They didn't warn me. And then I'm going to be punching this thing up, and I'm going to be putting 60,000 pounds of thrust on my back and heading towards space at Mach 5. Everything happens very, very fast. And presumably they're going to go from the sky into into space.
1: It's going to go right. from blue to, to black.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, they would get up around the, the highest altitude reached by the X-15 was 67 miles, 354,200 feet. Uh, and uh, you were totally in space at that point. And you had to have reaction control system that would... Uh, control the attitude of the X-15 to keep it properly oriented so they could come down for a human-controlled reentry safely. Uh, So there was no aerodynamics. All the wings were totally useless at that point. You get down around 180,000 feet, that's when the wings started to take effect again. So you had this thing about half the altitude of the flight. You're up in space When I visited Edwards Air Force
1: Base, they were saying that all the roads here are named after dead pilots. Mm,
2: How safe was the X-15 compared to these other Mm. space planes? Uh, The X-15 was relatively safe, but when you're going out there to double the speed records and triple the altitude records of other aircraft, obviously you're getting into areas that are a little dangerous. Uh, There were uh, two major accidents on the program. Uh, one of which happened in November of 1962 with Jack McKay, and he came down very fast. There was problems with the hydraulic system, and he had no flaps. And when he hit the lake bed at Mud Lake uh, near Tonopah, Nevada, uh, the X-15 basically crashed. It flipped over. Uh, He had to jettison the canopy before he was able to flip over because he knew he wouldn't be able to get out if that was still in place. And uh, it actually compressed his neck by three-quarters of an inch because now the weight was sitting on his helmet. It was compressing him upside down in the aircraft. And unfortunately, in the long run, it took about 13 years, but it was in 1975 that he succumbed to his injuries. He was in such pain for the rest of his life uh, because of that. So that was the first major problem. And then in 1967, November 67, Mike Adams, uh, flew the X-15 number 3 to an astronaut qualification flight and became disoriented. The aircraft actually re-entered backwards and he went into a hypersonic spin. He was able to recover from that but the aircraft went into a, an up and down porpoising motion which tore the aircraft apart and killed Mike Adams. So he was the only actual fatality during the time of the program and when you really think about it, 199 flights, 12 pilots. Overall, they did pretty good at getting this thing down safely for as many times as they did. It's interesting. This was all taking place in parallel
1: mm. with the space program, the oh, yeah. Mercury and, and Gemini and in, into Apollo.
2: Right. And these were these were astronauts as well. There were lot of them. Oh yes, yeah. The X-15 actually created eight new American astronauts, and we had uh, five of them from the Air Force and three of them from NASA. And most people had no clue that these guys were even flying anymore. At the very beginning of the program, it was different. The late 50s, early 60s, up until about 61 or so, everybody was looking to Edwards as the place where we were going to be flying America's first spaceman. And then all of a sudden, we started launching people from the Cape. We had Alan Shepard lobbing up there and such. And uh, we were heading toward the moon. And it was all being done with this brute force of the rockets. But that captured everybody's attention. The guy who was running the program at Edwards was a guy named Paul Bickle. He took over uh, from Walt Williams. And uh, he really hated that the media was out there hounding him all the time. And he was very thankful when Apollo took over. He was talking about it, it was like, You know, it's really great that they left because then we could get on and do our program of our research and stuff. So he was glad to see them leave. And they originally envisioned they built three aircraft, and they were planning on flying about 100 flights. And they figured they would do that in like maybe four or five years. So the fact that it went to almost a full decade of flight and double the number of flights that they anticipated – was really pretty amazing they got that far. The fact that they ended the program with two aircraft intact was amazing. You go back to the X 1s, the X 2s, they were losing these aircraft right and left. And uh, so it went so much further beyond what it, they envisioned. And one of the things that came out of that, too, was that they changed the aspect about halfway through the program from the X 15 being the experiment to the X15 carrying the experiments. They started adding on all these extra things to find out, gee, we're up there, what can we do? And so the X-15 became an experiment carrier and provided a lot of stuff. They were actually doing research for the Apollo missions. Uh, They were carrying insulation for the Saturn V and stuff to see what would happen. Uh, What's called the cue ball on the front nose of the X-15, which sensed its attitude in the air, was actually transferred directly to the Saturn V and the cue ball was up on the very top of the Saturn V at the nose of the launch escape system to give the attitude of the Saturn V in the early aspects of flight. So again, a lot of crossover from that.
1: It's a shame that the, the dream of being able to take off on a runway and get into space, uh, getting
2: to orbit, right. is, a, is an
1: unfulfilled
2: dream still. Yeah, to be able to take off and stuff, there was there was the follow-on programs that were envisioned, such as the X-20 Dinosaur, the X-24C, things like that that would have been nice to have seen. Eventually, we had things like the X-30, the aerospace plane. All of these things ended up getting canceled. It's really sad. When I talked to these X-15 guys, one of the things that came out of this was that This was the logical progression. We were moving from the X1, X2, et cetera. We were moving up in speed and altitude. The X15 was just the next step. It was never supposed to be the last step. And these guys look back on their career, and it's like this was the pinnacle of their program, the zenith of their careers, And they never thought that would happen because they did see these follow-on programs and then they all started falling away. The funding disappeared and it was terrible that we've not followed up on that. We did obviously with the space shuttle, but even then that was sort of a different aspect. We need to be running more of these types of programs just to experiment, see what's possible, tweak things. Again without the X-15, space shuttle never would have happened. The X-15 was something that they said out of the first 100 flights, if it had been an unmanned aircraft that they'd been trying to do, like, remote control, they would have lost all three of the aircraft probably within the first 20, 30, 40 flights. So, again, getting 199 flights, it's having somebody at the controls that can tell you what's going on, can fix the problems as they're happening, makes all the difference, too. And, and do you think the astronauts who flew these, I mean, not all what became astronauts because not all reached
1: right, yeah. space, but do you think they didn't really ever get the credit they, they deserved? I mean, they should be perhaps as, as well thought of as, as the Apollo
2: astronauts. I mean, they were operating at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, The X-15 guys never really got the accolades that were deserved to them. Uh, Again, they sort of did at the beginning. Scott Crossfield was sort of a household name. Joe Walker was huge at the time. Uh, It's unfortunate when he died in 1966. Um, But again, that focus shifted. So before that happened, as I said, we had eight of the 12 pilots did become astronauts. And The Air Force took care of their own five astronauts at the time it happened. They gave them astronaut wings. They recognized those. We had three guys from NASA. NASA did not actually recognize their astronaut status until 2005. And at that point, only one of them, Bill Dana, was even left alive to get his thing. We had Joe Walker, Jack McKay, and Bill Dana had all exceeded astronaut status But Bill Dana was the only one who ever lived long enough to see his own wings presented to him. And unfortunately, he's gone now as well. And another aspect of this, which is really interesting, is that the X-15 pilots, there's 12 X-15 pilots. There were 12 guys who walked on the moon. This all happened at the same time. These guys were all born at approximately the same time, the mid-20s to the early 30s. And unfortunately now, we've got one X-15 guy that's still with us. We've only lost five of the Apollo astronauts. So from that aspect, you can say, yeah, flying airplanes like the X-15 is a much more dangerous business, and that's why we've had such attrition with these guys. It's terrible, the people that we've lost. And also the X-15 provided something. Joe Engel, who was one of the X-15 pilots, he's also the guy who wrote the foreword for my book. He's the last surviving X-15 pilot. He flew into space and earned his astronaut wings on the X-15 three times. Then he went to the space program and eventually flew the space shuttle twice. The only man in history who has manually flown a reentry from space to the ground, an amazing accomplishment, hes the only man in history that ever earned his wings before going into orbit. So really neat guy.
5: Michelle Evans, and a fascinating interview there from the author of the X-15 rocket plane. I was especially interested to hear there about Joe Engel. Now, afterwards, Richard drove a few short miles to the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona, where the oldest surviving B-52 bomber that carried X-15s is being restored. And there he met the Director of Collections and Aircraft Restoration for the museum, James Stemm.
4: Its contribution to the X-15 and the uh, NASA's space program is very important. And what you're doing right now is restoring the plane, that spraying that's
1: going on. You're spraying the the old paint off, the debris off the wings and things.
4: Basically, what we're doing right now is removing the old paint uh, so that we can examine the structure of the aircraft to look for corrosion or any other problems there might be that we can fix. And then we will repaint the aircraft into its uh, accurate historic markings so that it will look the way it looked while it was carrying the X-15.
1: And it's remarkably well-preserved in terms of the structure that held the X-15. So think about it. You've got the the wings, obviously, the side. You've got the eight engines hanging off the wings. They hang below the wings on the uh, B-52. And then just near the fuselage on, I suppose, if you're looking at it, it would be on the left-hand side, just near the the fuselage itself, there's this sort of cradle arrangement. The X fifteen fitted into,
4: so it fitted underneath the wing. Yeah, exactly. Um, the X fifteen was uh, would be lifted up with a with a hydraulic lift up to the wing and, and attached on there before the aircraft took off. And um, because of where the airplane where the X fifteen was located, obviously the pilot had to get in before the before takeoff, and then he would ride in there while they went up to altitude. The aircraft is basically complete and exactly the way it was when it was being operationally used. And when was that? I mean, that was, what, through the 50s, 60s? It it was used through through the 1950s and 60s. Um, This aircraft's last flights were in the mid-1970s. The X-15 program was over by then, but it was being used for other things.
1: It's extraordinary
4: that an aircraft, okay, it's
1: a very big aircraft and it's got eight engines could hold another aircraft underneath it. And on the wing, it wasn't like it was specially designed for this. It was a B-52 that they stuck
4: another plane underneath. Basically, yeah. Um, The B-52s were designed so that they could carry missiles or bombs under the wings. So essentially what NASA did was modify that system to carry the much larger uh, x fifteen. So that required a special pylon to be designed and some modifications to the wing. They had to cut out a big section of the B-52's wing behind where the X-15 would be to make room for the tail. This aircraft dropped the X-15, I believe it was uh, 80 times, I believe. Uh, You can see those 80 flights in the same way that,
1: you know, some aircraft... Uh, military aircraft will have little pictures of uh, other aircraft along the side that the you know, craft have been shot down or right. bombs on the side you know bombs that have been dropped. but this has little pictures of x
4: fifteens on the side, each of those represents one of the x fifteen flights uh, and the the orientation of the of the image of the airplane sh- is tells you what the mission was. The horizontal ones were speed flights the angled ones upward were uh, altitude flights some of them represent capture flights where they simply flew the airplane to see how it would hang on the air on the B52 and or just test drop it. A couple of them are pointed either backwards or down and those are missions that failed for some reason. Dangerous as well. I mean this was an experimental aircraft. It was it was extremely dangerous, not only simply because the technology was new but because the the rockets were powered by extremely volatile fuels and could and did occasionally explode, it was, it was an extremely hazardous job. That, and the test pilots who did it were, were very good, very good pilots. And I suppose a lot of the
1: technologies developed here, and developed in the 50s and 60s, are now being rediscovered. You look at the, the Virgin space plane, for example, which would drop from another aircraft.
4: Yeah, absolutely. The, the technologies that were used in the X Plane, the early X Plane programs from the X 1 up through well, the X 24, even, have been reused now and are being rediscovered by the, the different projects that are working on rocket planes and uh, like Virgin Galactic and the rest of them that are, that are trying to do that.
5: James Stem from the Pima Air and Space Museum. Well, that's it for this edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do follow us on Facebook and Twitter. There's always something to discuss about space and we'd love to hear from you. Richard is en route to Australia now. He seems to get all the travel, which I'm not bitter, not much anyway. So no doubt we'll have some interesting space-related reports from that part of the world in future podcast. Thanks very much to my guest Dr Sheila Kanani and thanks also for our support from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and a grant from where we are today in London, the Royal Astronomical Society.